Hello and welcome to IHBC at COP26. Conserving buildings and places conserves our planet. Today we're joined by Stephanie Phillips. Stephanie is a senior specialist with the City of San Antonio Office of Historic Preservation, where she leads the Rehabber Club program, serves as lead case manager for the city's Historic and Design Review Commission, and is the project manager for the city's Deconstruction and Salvage Policy Initiative. Her professional and extracurricular work operates at the intersection of heritage and sustainability, specifically the advancement of circular economy policy and the development of equitable climate resiliency strategies rooted in place and traditional knowledge. Stephanie is a 2019 Post-Carbon Cities of Tomorrow Fellow and a 2021 recipient of the Harrison Goodall Preservation Fellowship. She holds a Master of Science in Historic Preservation from the University of Texas at Austin and a Bachelor of Science in Interior Architecture from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Well, thank you for joining us today, Stephanie. Thank you for having me, Michael. Excited to be here. So I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself, how you got started, and why you're passionate about sustainability and conservation. Yes, thank you. So as you heard, my primary background is in interior architecture. Um, that's kind of how I dived into the preservation field. The way that I kind of ended up in the preservation space was, you know, my program focused on interior architecture was really kind of void of designing for a particular place or community. It was kind of like, here's a box and fill it. And I was very interested in being able to fully understand the context by which we use design to, you know, contribute to a community. So my first dive into preservation, and I love telling the story because I included it on my graduate applications. Um, I went to or undergraduate school at in Madison, Wisconsin, which has this really fabulous pedestrian only main street. So no cars, all circa 1900s buildings. And as I was walking to an internship, I was kind of like staring at the cornices of these buildings. And I literally ran into a light pole, like just banged right into a light pole, walk into my internship because I was staring at old architecture. And I feel like a lot of people listening to this can relate to that. Um, but I, I realized that there was such a great value and potential in being able to design with something that already exists. It's a challenge that makes the design world that much more exciting. So I was fortunate enough to volunteer with the city of Madison's preservation department, which kind of got my toes wet in terms of what preservation planning might look like at a municipal level, and then went to graduate school where I was fortunate enough to transition into my first role with the government, which was um, as a preservation project assistant for the exterior restoration of the Texas State Capitol building. And that is a circa 1888 beautiful granite structure with 777 wood windows. And my first project out of graduate school was kind of coordinating that restoration effort. And anyone that knows me will know that I will tell you that wood windows are the coolest thing to ever exist ever. Um, and I transitioned that love into um, the Office of Historic Preservation at the city of San Antonio, which is where I'm about to celebrate my five-year anniversary. And a lot of the work that I do is preservation planning focused, but because um, that planning engages our community and our residents so often, um, not only are we dealing with kind of the retention of historic districts and collections of buildings, but we're also talking with um, 
historic property owners daily about the value of retaining original materials and historic context and um, ensuring that all of that is retained. So that's where I'm at now and it's been a, a wonderful journey. No, that's fantastic. Good. So the city of San Antonio Office of Historic Preservation, could you expand a little bit on, on what the role of that office is? Yes, so the city of San Antonio's Office of Historic Preservation is is a really unique office, um, not only in Texas, but in the entire country, in the United States. Usually historic preservation offices or departments are kind of nestled within a planning office or a development office. Um, and our office is a standalone department, um, meaning that our director, Shannon Miller, who is amazing, reports directly to the city manager. She kind of has that direct line of access to city leadership. And we have over 20 staff members dedicated exclusively to our office, which is amazing. We, we are so fortunate to have all of these amazing staff members and resources. And I work primarily with kind of our preservation planning arm. So kind of the traditional design review that you might anticipate from a municipal preservation office, doing design review, reviewing new construction and changes to districts. But we also have a lot of other divisions, including archaeology. We have two city archaeologists that look at archaeological resources in San Antonio. Um, we have a division called Living Heritage, which focuses on a lot of the intangible parts of our job, which is really exciting. So talking about legacy businesses, cultural heritage districts, um, rebuilding our traditional trades. We have a budding Living Heritage Trades Academy. Um, and then we also have other divisions that focus on um, kind of expanding, you know, what our role can be in the city, um, designation and landmarking, um, using digital tools to document historic spaces. Uh, we really kind of run the gamut of, of what our office does. And it is unusual, but also um, such an important expansion of what heritage can be in a city. Now, you're um, the project manager for your city's deconstruction and salvage policy initiative. Can you tell us what deconstruction is, what, what that means? And Yes, I would love to. I could talk about this forever. So um, deconstruction is a building removal method. It is the systematic disassembly of a structure in the opposite order it was constructed um, with a goal of maximizing kind of the salvage and reuse of building materials. It's often referred to unbuilding or reverse engineering uh, because unlike a demolition site where you're using kind of large machinery to quickly remove a structure, when you're removing a structure via deconstruction, it almost looks more like a traditional construction site because you're using human labor to take down a building from the roof to the foundation um, and you're carefully dismantling it board by board, brick by brick, to retain the highest value and reuse of materials. And this is really important to us because studies show that a house deconstruction, if it's done you know, well, can divert around 65% to 85% from the landfill. And in some cases, depending on you know, the construction methods of the structure, it can reclaim up to 95% of materials from the landfill. And that's really critical for us in, um, when we're talking about heritage conservation because when we're sending building materials to the landfill, we're completely eliminating the opportunity to reclaim them. And from a 
conservation perspective, what we're really interested in doing is capturing those materials that are already heading to the, to the landfill and redirecting them to repair existing historic structures that are gonna live on. Um, we've been using this analogy um, like an organ donor, a building may have reached the end of its useful life, but its parts and pieces can help sustain the lives of other historic structures. No, very interesting analogy. Do you do you worry about this sort of loss of context or significance, especially when it you know when it comes to sort of a sense of place with with these uh, historic buildings sort of disappearing at all, or or is it sort of a case of you know they're already sort of marked to come down, nothing to be done there, but just try to get the best sort of possible outcome after that? Yeah, I think um, we're really of the mindset of the latter. Um, we see deconstruction as a way to disrupt kind of this really commonplace practice of bulldozing buildings. What's really hopeful, um, especially that we're seeing leading up to COP26 this year, is that there's kind of this overarching movement within the building industry worldwide to say, wait, it, it is really important to reuse our existing buildings instead of demolishing them and sending them to the landfill. It's a really important climate consideration. So. For us, we, we still absolutely see rehabilitation of existing buildings as kind of the pinnacle of waste prevention. Um, that's kind of another line that we've been using in our initiative locally is historic preservation is waste prevention. And if you retain the whole building, you're actually demonstrating the best kind of waste management practices you possibly could. Um, but for us too, we are very mindful that um, in order to address kind of the demolition crisis, we have to be mindful of it. We can't just run away from it. <laughs> um, we have to recognize that not all buildings will be able to be saved and that preservation can play a really critical role in determining the next useful life of those materials. So it's been really interesting to dive into the deconstruction space in America as a heritage conservation professional because the ethos and value systems between deconstruction and heritage conservation are actually extremely similar. Um, we both believe that they're rooted in the same value system of stewardship and reuse, fundamentally. Um, so in terms of losing context and kind of um, worrying about the, the loss of buildings proper, um, materials, historic materials are also contributing to that context discussion. And not only is demolition a really terrible environmental practice, but it can be really almost violent and almost fracturing for communities when demolition happens. Um, and I bring this up because it's an, an important factor for our deconstruction efforts locally, um, but it really makes demolition personal. So for years, even before deconstruction was on our radar, we had community members coming to us. Again, we're a preservation planning organization, so they have a direct line to us, um, demanding that something change with demolition. They wanted access to the building materials if the buildings couldn't be saved. They wanted the buildings that they cared about to be treated respectfully at the end of their life. I think kind of this personification of buildings when we're talking about the organ donor analogy, it's the same thing. We don't want these really important buildings to be violently torn down. We want them to be treated with respect at the end of their lives. And the way by which you take them down is almost a way of doing that. Um, and the community wanted more inclusion in the process. So these are big things <laughs> that we've been engaging with for years. 
and they be similar they might be similar to the experiences in your own towns or cities but what's really important about kind of this point is that these discussions don't just center on preservation as a building in place as the only priority but also kind of this interstitial space that specifically involves dismantling and material salvage and reuse as kind of a form of community closure so being able to think about what preservation might look like to our older communities in San Antonio, these legacy neighborhoods, is really important when we're talking about the difference between big P preservation and little p preservation, um, where our own communities are the ones saying, we think that reclaiming materials is actually a really good way to honor our communities. Yeah, that's incredible that you had that sort of community-led feedback and, and process. What are some of the barriers that you come across to deconstruction? You know, I'm thinking here issues along uh, getting material guarantees and warranties, issues with sort of getting financing potentially or insurance. I mean, can you talk through some of, some of these barriers you come across? Yeah, that is such a great question. And um, I wish I had a magic answer for y'all. For us, we kind of see a different ranges of barriers. One, one that we're um, aiming to address in the near term is kind of evaluation of our local building codes. So for example, um, we like to say that traditional wisdom says that older building materials, especially old growth lumber, are inherently more durable, rot resistant, straighter, um, easier to reuse, yet a lot of um, the building codes that we deal with are really structured around brand new materials and virgin lumber. And just kind of that the way that system is set up makes it really difficult to kind of um, punch through these barriers when we're trying to talk about um, advancing material reuse. But we're seeing a lot of really promising practices coming out of different communities in the United States. And the one that I might refer to a few more times in our discussion is the city of Portland, Oregon. Um, the city of Portland has the first deconstruction ordinance or mandate in North America, which has been in place since 2016. And because they've started um, deconstructing now two thirds of their residential building stock instead of demolishing it, they have kind of this you know, stockpile of old growth lumber, which is really revered in the Pacific Northwest. You have these really amazing trees that um, were kind of torn down to, to build this, this building stock. So what they're seeing is universities, uh, new startup communities and businesses, taking that old growth lumber and using it to mill cross laminated timber, for example, which is really exciting because you're using lumber that already exists. You're not tearing down more trees to create this product. Um, so you're preventing kind of that destruction, which is a climate issue. And you're creating the same exact material that can be easily regulated, easily identifiable by code officers and, and kind of um, rating agencies. So, I think that's a really promising um, example of, of how we can kind of disrupt that system. But uh, at a local level in San Antonio, collaboration is key. So for us, we're also really working really closely with building inspectors that go out and actually evaluate framing and sign off on uh, new construction to make sure it's safe and kind of understanding what their training looks like and where these push points might be where we're able to say, you know, this is actually a really good piece of wood to use. Um, do you think so too? And they're like, yeah, this is great. We can certify that. So 
it all starts with starting these conversations and, and being able to figure out where those barriers might lie to kind of establish, you know, a point where we can work together to reclaim more materials and, and create that market. Amazing. Yeah, I could see it being a bit of a challenge. There's so many different points of the construction process. And, and you know, are you, are you starting to see the dots join up as, as far as a market, you know, contractors willing to do the deconstructing and holding the materials, builders using them, owners wanting them, architects specifying them, you know, are you really seeing that sort of starting to come together? Yes. Uh, I love that you listed like all of these players that are integral to, to this advancement. I, I think that's what I love so much about talking about deconstruction is that there are so many players that need to come together to, to advance this effort. And what we're really excited about in San Antonio is that um, just a few months ago, that one of the largest demolition contractors in San Antonio came to us saying, you know, we are really wanting to scale up our deconstruction wing. Like we, we don't like seeing these materials thrown into the landfill. We, we see that they have value, but we're not so interested in creating a warehouse or selling the materials. Like we know how to take buildings down. We don't know how to sell materials quite yet. So what are the opportunities for us to kind of scale up our operations and, and are there places in San Antonio to take the materials once we take them down? Because we'd be willing to just give it to y'all. And we're like, wow, this is amazing. And a lot, of, a lot of those conversations have come from just elevating deconstruction as a practice in San Antonio from saying the word more often, communicating with our local stakeholders about what deconstruction is and really illuminating it as an opportunity. Um, so we do have on the deconstruction side, contractors absolutely willing to scale up. Um, on the retail side, kind of the demand side, that's where San Antonio is kind of um, where we need to see the most growth, most growth happen. Um, I always say that San Antonio kind of has a really small salvage infrastructure compared to other major cities in the United States. Um, we're the seventh largest city in the country, but we don't have a lot of dedicated warehouse space for reclaimed building materials. A lot of the industry in San Antonio are kind of these really small mom and pop shops that kind of reclaim and resell. It's kind of a boutique industry. So what we're trying to do as a city is explore different policies and partnerships to increase that activity um, at the retail scale and the warehousing scale. So that, that is where we're at now is, is how can we facilitate that. Um, and then what's really exciting about San Antonio in general is, I always say we have a really great reuse ethic. Um, I think everyone, might know about the Alamo. <laughs> um, we heritage tourism and historic preservation and heritage conservation are kind of this like key rooted identity in San Antonio. Um, so our architects and our designers are really inclined to kind of use what they have. Uh, so there's also a growing interest from our designers to reclaim um, really beautiful authentic shiplap, for example, or teardrop siding, wood siding that is, has a profile that you can't find anymore. Um, there's kind of this eagerness to, to prolong that material identity in our communities. So I think we're in a really good place to kind of facilitate and expand that market really quickly. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I wanted to sort of go on from that a little bit and, and talk about the sort of messaging and, and sort of raising the profile of deconstruction. And, and I suppose you're doing a lot of that now in San Antonio. Are, are you doing that? Are you seeing it sort of 
nationally? Are there, there are sort of national and international networks? I mean, I know you're part of Climate Heritage Network. Are you sort of seeing other regions or, or nationalities getting involved in this? Yes, absolutely. Um, I love that you bring up communication because that is really the backbone of advancing this practice. I always joke that if you if you Google image deconstruction, a lot of times you'll see like pictures of the deconstructivist art movement. Like there are a lot of people out there that don't associate deconstruction with like a building removal practice. So <laughs> at a large scale, we have a lot of, of, of ways to go, um, but it's a, it's a challenge we're willing to tackle. Um, as a preservation entity, as a heritage conservation entity, it was really, really important from us from the beginning to convey that our initiative was not about if a building comes down, but rather how a building comes down, meaning that deconstruction is not a preservation alternative, it's a demolition alternative. And our efforts really are to make build deconstruction the only building removal method out there. Eliminating, eliminating demolition is an option. Now that is, we have a long way to go for that, but that is kind of the message we've been leading with. And it's cultivated a really broad level of support from our community, including our heritage conservation organizations, which has been really, really exciting. Um, from a communications aspect as well, we've been emphasizing that deconstruction as a practice really isn't that new. Before the advancement of kind of these really big machines, you, typically after World War II is when you see this shift of mass growth and kind of the wrecking ball becoming this heroic image in our communities. Deconstruction used to be the primary building removal method. It used to be called wrecking. And what's really exciting from us as a heritage conservation organization is that we're using a lot of traditional archival methods that our industry is used to using, like newspaper archives, deed information, old photographs. And what we've found in San Antonio is this long evidence of deconstructing and taking building materials and repairing other buildings in the same vicinity. It happened all the time before bulldozers came into the picture. So we like to use that as a communication tool because it really kind of creates this aha moment with our, our stakeholders like, oh yeah, like this isn't a brand new concept. I think this is something that we could return to eventually. And as a city, I think one of our primary communication methods has been community events. And I'm going to share a really brief story with you because it's like my favorite example of community engagement ever. So uh, back in 2019, before COVID, um, our local Green Building Authority invited us to participate in an event called Solar Fest, like solar panels. So San Antonio is very sunny. Solar energy is a big deal here. So um, with our engagement with our Green Building Authority through the deconstruction initiative, they're like, y'all need to come, which is great preservation needs to be included in these conversations, right? So this was a public event with booths in a, a really amazing civic park in downtown San Antonio. And instead of choosing to focus our booth space on kind of the regulatory aspects of heritage conservation, we decided to use it as an opportunity to focus on deconstruction. And this happened around this time in 2019 in um, early November. It aligns very closely with the date of American Thanksgiving. And American Thanksgiving involves turkeys. And at the presidential level, the president always pardons a turkey, right, from Thanksgiving. So we wanted to kind of play a riff on that. And our office created this turkey 
statue from salvaged materials using reclaimed lumber as her body, um, old door poles as her eyeballs and her little like waddle, if that's what you call it. Um, and we named her Sally. And I still am in awe that we managed to convince our city leadership, including our mayor, to pardon Sally, the salvaged turkey, from the landfill in front of all of these people at this community <laughs> event. And it sounds really, really silly. I mean, it was amazing. This is a career That's highlight. Amazing. <laughs> but the, the reason I mentioned that is because we created this, you know, kind of fake proclamation that the mayor read and it included information about our office's efforts to reduce landfill waste, to advance reuse in the, in the local economy, to preserve buildings um, as a member of the Climate Heritage Network. So even though it kind of was this fun, cheeky event, it was just another way to reaffirm how a preservation organization can lead these conversations around environmental stewardship and reuse. So that has really been our, our goal with all of our communication efforts locally. And I love that you mentioned the Climate Heritage Network because it has been such a really inspiring way to funnel kind of local innovation and advancement up into an international community. So as you know, the Climate Heritage Network is a mutual support network of cities, arts organizations, heritage organizations, NGOs, universities that are broadly committed to advancing the Paris Climate Agreement. And it foregrounds cultural heritage as climate action. And I think that that is kind of the international element of what I've been illustrating locally is like we are trying to use heritage as a form of climate action and deconstruction and reuse of building materials is really kind of that vehicle. And it goes back to the old adage, if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. <laughs> so the Climate Heritage Network is kind of this international space where we can advance that and partner and move quicker and faster to address our climate crisis. So communication is key and so is partnerships and that's kind of been the the fundamental basis of how we've approached all of our work. I understand you've been awarded a 2021 Harrison Goodall Fellowship and we'll be launching the Circular Heritage Project as a component. Congratulations first off. Could you Thank tell you. us a little bit about what the Circular Heritage Project is or, or will be? Yes, uh, thanks for bringing that up. So the Heritage Goodall Preservation Fellowship is an American fellowship that gives the opportunity for um, professionals to pursue a focused pursuit that kind of makes a meaningful contrib contribution to the field of heritage conservation and support the stewardship of historic resources. And what I love about the fellowship is that it really is focused on innovation within the heritage conservation field. So um, I see being awarded a fellowship as a really promising you know, demonstration that talking about deconstruction and material reuse is a really key component of the future of heritage conservation. So my project is called the, the Circular Heritage Project and it's really kind of focusing on bringing a, a common European uh, uh, topic, which is material passports, and exploring how that can be applied to the heritage conservation field in America in practice. So a materials passport is very similar to like a travel passport for us. It provides information on a materials identity um, and it makes the end of life recovery of certain building materials easier. 
So instead of, oh, we need to take apart this building and we don't know what we're going to find, a materials passport allows us to understand what we might uncover and therefore allows other agencies, we were talking about the importance of architects and designers and specifiers to contribute to the advancement of the circular economy. If you're a designer and you know that a building is coming down in a different neighborhood that has, you know, X amount of board feet of lumber, you're like, I can use this in my project. I don't have to use new lumber to do this. So that's kind of the idea. And what I see for materials passports is preservation and heritage conservation. We do a really good job of telling stories of whole buildings. We know how buildings were constructed. We know where those materials came from. So it's almost like just capitalizing on the work that we already do and figuring out how we contribute to the advancement of a circular economy. So not only will the project apply materials passports in that regard and explore how that can be facilitated, but the goal is also to develop preliminary recommendations and how multi-property entities such as you know, historic house museums or in America, our National Park Service, municipalities, nonprofits, can apply this concept to um, existing buildings and create databases of their own buildings and figure out how we can coordinate material transfers easier between buildings. So for example, a window needs to be replaced for whatever reason. Well, maybe another property that we own just down the way could use that material or that window to fix their building. So very broadly, it's going to explore how preservation can contribute to the growing circular economy movement and circular construction practices and help elevate our field as a critical component of climate resiliency and adaptation. So stay tuned. Well, yeah, that sounds really amazing. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Stephanie, and, and talking with us today. I'd like to wrap up by asking you, in your estimation, what does the future look like or what should it look like in terms of sustainability and conservation of the built environment? Uh, I love this question. <laughs> So I truly could talk forever about this, but I want to offer kind of a unique anecdote from our own uh, deconstruction efforts here. So early in our deconstruction policy efforts, we held multiple public input meetings to get community feedback on what a deconstruction program might look like. And one comment that lives in my head rent-free, as the youth like to say, is a comment from a historic district resident. Um, she told us that if a house was coming down in her neighborhood, which was mainly developed in the early 1900s, that her and her neighbors should be the ones with the first opportunity to claim those materials. So for her vision, in essence, was for this micro-circular economy at a neighborhood level, um, where materials from one 1900s home can be redirected for repair of a similar 1900s home down the street. You know, the materials are similar, the wood came from the same forest, most likely, and that is truly a demonstration of an in-kind repair, which kind of eliminates her own dependency on big box stores that carry lumber that may not, you know, maybe a Band-Aid repair in the long term, but she would be better served to use lumber from the same era of construction for her home. So I think about that a lot because that really ties into how material reuse and reclamation can contribute to affordable housing repair, can contribute to affordable housing production, can eliminate our dependency on virgin materials. And, um, you know, that is kind of the vision of our ambition. And I kind of want to end with like a comment that is ex extraordinarily hopeful. 
where we are at in San Antonio, I had mentioned that we're trying to, as a city, grow our retail space for salvage materials, right? And increase warehousing space. So what we are exploring at this very moment is the creation of a reuse innovation hub. So we're envisioning this physical space where people can drop off salvage materials from buildings that have been deconstructed. And we can use those materials as materials for our Living Heritage Trades Academy. So we do a lot of trades education in our office. So we say, why would we use lumber from a big box store when we can use reclaimed lumber to teach the future craftsmen of our, of our region how to rebuild a window or repair siding? Um, we also see this reuse innovation hub as an opportunity for startups and small businesses to explore kind of that example that I shared in Portland, how we can use existing materials instead of mining our earth for more materials to create new products that can be easily specified in new buildings and new construction for our architects and designers. We also see it as an opportunity to create ways to advance back to affordable housing. Can we create a salvage to accessory dwelling unit concept where kind of like the kit houses of the early 1900s, the Sears kit homes in America, how can, again, how can we get back to those practices where we're using reclaimed materials and being able to package it up in kits for small scale residential to again reaffirm and address our affordable housing crisis. So this is the vision that we're kind of hoping for San Antonio and hoping that it kind of catalyzes the same like regional circular economy hub for building materials that we envision. And the best part of all of this is that through our communication efforts, our partnership efforts, you know, our solid waste management department is completely on board with this and they are willing to help us in any way possible. Our green building community is really inspired by this. Our small business community is really excited about it. So, you know, from the years that we've explored diving into deconstruction as a heritage conservation treatment, it's kind of created what I see as the space where I think the heritage conservation field can operate to be the leaders. I really think that we can be the leaders in the architecture, engineering, construction industries transition to a more circular building ethic. You know, we can be the ones to lead by example.